This is Women Take the Wheel. Sit down, strap in, and turn on all you got. Nikki Clark is taking you behind the scenes. You're ready to win. Let me tell you, these cars, they get up and go pretty good. Introducing you to women drivers, crew members, and fans of the racing world. Plus, Nikki is bringing you the latest racing news in Indiana and beyond. We're going to bring it to you from the tower as they get ready to pull into the beach. From the All Indiana Podcast Network. All right, strap yourselves in. Woo! Getting off the track. And in your ears, <laughs> this is Women Take the Wheel. Come on, baby! With your host, Here we go. Nikki, Nikki Clark. Clark. Hey, it's Nikki Clark, your host for Women Take the Wheel, here on the All Indian Podcast Network. On this episode, we're talking to top fuel driver, Leah Pruitt. Find out how she got started racing at just eight years old. Hear her advice for girls wanting to get into the sport. And find out what was going through her head during her recent crash in St. Louis that sent her car flying down the track. All this and more coming up on Women Take the Wheel. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, Leah is my guest today, and I've known Leah since, what, I think like 2013, I think it was, when I first met you driving for the Dotes. That is correct. Yes, that's when we first got to work together. Yay! And she is so awesome to work with. I'm like, when I just got there, I'm like, oh, I love this girl. And I also remember, though, I brought you cupcakes for your birthday, and you're like, yeah, I'm doing this keto thing. I can't have sugar. I'm like, well, they're mine now. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm happy to be your, your first one. I want to thank the listeners that are on for tuning in with you. I know you've got a lot of hands and fingers and, and knowledge and network into uh, the drag racing zone so very happy to kick this off with you well thank you thank you so much and we're just going to dive in and start with junior drag racing where you got your start how old were you when you started driving sure absolutely so i was uh the brand new age of eight when i started uh, the nhra junior drag racing league at that time uh, had a start age of eight where now they have a start age of five so on when i was seven years old on a saturday and i had to wait till i was eight years old on sunday And I began at Pomona Fairplex, which was my home track, back when they would run junior races and uh, run with your brongs and all of that before they kind of got shut down with the noise ordinances. And I I competed locally, Southern California, expanded into Division 7 for the first couple of years and then was able to qualify uh, for whether it was Team Pomona or Team Rialto or Inyo Kern uh, Vegas for for the national championships and that's where at one time all the kids across the nation would represent a particular track and qualify for it and show up to denver colorado for the one national championship out of your age bracket so that was 
that was the the end all be all. That was the biggest thing that I could possibly do or want to be, and it was to get that national one national championship. And I was able to be a team champion three times. I was able to runner up. I've I've semi there, but I never was able to win that very the sole one, which kind of brings me full circle to when we won Top Fuel in 2018 in Denver in the 1320 um, Angry Bee car that I kind of finished something that I had started as as a kid, never able to win on the mountain. And then in Denver winning at the highest, most prestigious class of the NHRA was uh, totally full circle, but took a long time to get there. Wow. And what inspired you to first get into racing? I wouldn't necessarily call it inspired. I think I would call it, uh, I'm the, uh, who's the youngest kid in the family. And like, you're kind of going to go wherever your family goes. Oh yeah. I've Um, been there. My dad was a land speed racer at Bonneville. He'd race once, twice a year, a couple times at the dry lake bed. He had a 1988 Ford powered naturally aspirated Thunderbird, uh, setting records about 250, 260 miles an hour on the salt. So that's where I got my first taste of motorsports from when I was six months old. And from there, he just wanted to continue racing with his family, but it was just my sister and I, so two, two young girls. And that's when he had uh, found uh, the, the NHRA in their junior series. So my older sister started junior racing, and I'm just being toted along from like four or five, six years old and seven years old. And by the time I turned eight, I had you know, I wanted to do you know, what my older sister was doing. And that's that's how I got started, um, essentially. But the but the absolute like need for speed in my bones and my blood comes from my dad, and it comes from land speed racing, and not necessarily even drag racing. So I think that's why I kind of have a need for speed all over the all over the board. Oh, I was gonna say yeah. I'm like on the water, on your bike, when you're running. Yes, you're always full speed. I am. I, and if anybody hears any weird noises in the background, it's because I'm. There's a. I live in like Havasu City, Arizona, and there's a particular cove where all the competition jet skis go to tune, uh, test and tune and ride, and that happens to be where I'm at. I didn't know that they were doing that today, but <laughs> that is <laughs> motorsports and water sports everywhere. That is just fine. So then the next thing you moved into was that pro mod. Then I'll go through the list real quick. But yeah. at 16 years old, when you get your normal driver's license, then you can drive another car. I believe it's 18 for pro, but. I graduated from an 85 mile an hour junior dragster to a 1932 uh, blown big block Chevy Roadster Phantom body uh, going 180 miles an hour bracket racing at a 760 index wow. and a eliminator one category. And that we chose my, my family and I, we chose to run that category because parents, they owned a automotive repair shop. We were normal, like every working family and to run NHRA national events and divisionals required, you know, like leaving on Wednesday and parking on Thursday and waiting around Friday and Saturday, getting some runs and leaving on Monday. Like we couldn't afford to do that. So the good guys series at the time had these awesome events in Vegas and Tucson and Bakersfield and even Pomona for a short while of just a, a two or three day event. And and I really love, like, the hot rod car culture, rat rods. Like, you might not see that by looking at me, but that's, like, that's what attracts me and interest and is my jam. So we did that. And then after a couple of years, we're like, what's the, you know, economy's doing pretty well. And I was able to land some of my very first sponsors, being Dickie's Girl and Coast Airbrush. And 
built a nostalgia funny car with victory chassis um, in 2007 and ran nostalgia nitro funny car. And there were, man, there were like 38, 39, 40 nostalgia cars at that time buying for what was a 16 car field. And it got so big, they had, had a 32 car field. So it was a really interesting point in my life. And it was the last time I raced with my family, with our own family owned car. So when I was 19 years old, and raced a couple races qualified and uh, ultimately ran out of sponsorship money that night. We we were we learned firsthand how expensive nitro racing is and that we can't oh, yeah. do this. So from there, I hustled some more and found some more partners and uh, went to Steve Pluger, raced Nostalgia Funny Car with him, won the 2010 championship the hot rod reunion and the March meet. It was, I would say at that point I'd been racing for uh, over 10 years and it was by far the highlight of my career. And once I had won that championship, I decided I really need to finish college and dedicate, like get in the real world workforce and had the opportunity to drive pro mod for R2B2 Roger Burgess. And that was and if you ask any ProMod driver, like they're either like absolutely insane and they're screaming at the top of the mountain that they're insane and we all know that they're insane <laughs> or they're a little insane. I was the uh, opportunity to drive ProMod. I'm like, the only ProMods I've ever seen were at Sacramento Raceway and just looking like a nightmare to handle. I would go up there and watch the stands and they're like, look at these crazy guys. So for to have the opportunity to drive that car and it was it was a big leap of faith in my own talent. I wasn't sure if I was talented enough to wield that that vehicle, um, but the opportunity was greater than my fear, and took it. And we did extremely well, from Steve Petty to Bad Brad Brand uh, to as uh, Newman was my crew chief. We had I'm sorry Newberry. It was it was two and a half great years of uh, of a good learning curve of what it would take to be with a professional team moved to Atlanta all by myself and uh, drive pro mods and then learn from Melanie Troxel about managing a fuel team within with a nitro funny car so I was gonna all, ask you all that it's been great learning experiences what Roger did for the pro mod community for the sport putting it up on that upper echelon of its own series mm-hmm. uh, was very much incredible and I'm glad to see where that series has gone and the partners that are a part of it now and and everything that's expanded from that the outlaw pro mod racing that's out there right now is just insane if i could get into one of those cars uh i definitely would because i would like to i'd like to feel what it's like again because those cars have changed so much they've gotten way quicker and faster and uh that'll that'll be on my bucket list to go back pro mod racing i was going to ask you i'm like you prefer driving and stuff like that and then for women when you were out there in pro mod what was it you melanie shelly um, at the time when you were just first driving into Pro Mod, you weren't the only woman, were you? No, it was Melanie and myself. I don't believe I wasn't, I never got to run against Shelly and I missed that, that time stamp mm-hmm. a little bit. And of course, like now you've got Melanie Salimi who's just doing incredible. Oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, there was not a lot of women in the in that particular space. But what I like to say it was true then, it's true now, it will continue to be true, is that drag racing is not a male dominated sport. I think it's easy to say that those words kind of go together, but if you really think about it, it's not dominated by male. It's a male prevalent sport. There's a, the majority of like gender, it, you know, selection is male there, but domination, you take four time now 
world champion winner Erica Enders and myself winning factory stock and finishing fourth and fifth and seventh and winning races. You take Alexis and Brittany Force when she's out here running totally not only a contender but a former world champion. So the few females that are out here, even though they're more than another motorsports, are not just we're not just filling the gaps, you know, we're not just filling the fields. We're doing well, winning races and championships and uh and I think that's something to be said about A, the vision that the sport had in the beginning, B, the non chauvinistic mentality that the majority of people have within this sport and uh and the marketability I think is far and far beyond where other motorsports are at because we've we've utilized, capitalized on it and uh and become part of our norm for so long. So that's my that's my take on it. It's not not dominated by them, but it's male prevalent and I just I encourage so many women that have any type of interest in motorsport, like it doesn't even have to be driving or even tuning. Could be working on, could be painting, could be um you could be an engineer, it could be on the OE side. Like there's literally a career choice for women in motorsports and in the automotive industry that doesn't have to be just getting downright greasy and dirty. Like your mind can work in all the different facets of ways from science, math and technology uh, to, to creative, uh, to marketing, to what you do. Like there's an opportunity everywhere. And it's, I would say if I had one piece of advice for them is really focusing on what is it that you like about motorsports and cars and then figure out a way of what career path you see yourself in. And then I guarantee you there is a way that, that shows you it, whether it's the Mopar CAP program from a vocational school, um, whether it's going to a drag race and having a conversation with a crew member or a driver. Uh, it's, but the number one thing is focusing on which, which, which one gets your ticker going. Like what part of motorsports, if it's just the speed of being at the races, uh, there's hundreds of careers out there in that scope for sure preach sister that's what i'm trying to get through with this you know with this podcast and everything's explaining all the different roles out there for women and i love how you say it's not dominated it's majority and prevalent but i like that saying that is perfect and then so then after promod you got did you license first in a funny car or a top field dragster so that's where things get a little bit jumbled it's kind of that time for me was like a real life tetris game so as I was racing Nostalgia Funny Car in 2009 and 2010, had the opportunity to license via Don Schumacher. I remember the day he called me. I'm at wow. the, I'm in my garage. I've still got the, looking at the 32 Bantam, and I get this Chicago number. I'm like, oh, I'm not answering that. looks like spam. Calls, um, he leaves a voicemail. So then I listen to the voicemail. Hi, Leah. This is Don Schumacher. If you could please give me a call back. And I'm like, who is messing with me? No, there's like 18. <laughs> Schumacher's not calling me, uh, but he was. And at that time, uh, Gary Silsey had just announced his retirement and was going to have one more year. And Don was looking for, he asked that basically everyone in the industry, and there were like 40 people he had on, on the list to, uh, to, to come in and replace, Neil never replaced Gary, but to supersede him. And so I'm, we connected. I had the chance to make a hundred foot squirt in the night in the Mopar Oakley funny car at the U S nationals test session on like a Tuesday oh, and made that hundred foot squirt. I'd never even been like 200 miles an hour yet. So I'm like, this is a big deal. Never driven a pedal car, um, or a clutch car. 
and from a drag racing standpoint. So I hit the gas, could take it a hundred feet. And Don's like, is this what you want to do? And I said, I've dedicated my life to this. And what I just felt is exactly what I want to do. Moving forward. That was an interesting year. If people recall, you could only pro teams could only test four times a year. They, you know, NHRA is trying to keep the cost down oh. and budgets down and competition. Because man, the year before that, you take JFR and, and DSR. They're testing every Monday after every national event that the world could know. So you take an unlicensed driver, such as myself, and you put them in a program. We called it a program. It's just kind of our own program. And I would test on Mondays in Jack Beckman's car. Um, Jerry Tolliver's car and Selzy's car, they would get testing in and I would get laps in and I was building up my license. So Don Schumacher was the very first one to spot my talent and availability and opportunity before Roger, before this is before ProMod. I get my license and then of course the economy turns and we have our recession and I, I had a license and there we didn't have the funding to go racing. So that's when I went pro mod racing. And after pro mod racing, when, uh, when Roger decided to focus on his pro care, uh, pharmacy business, I had the opportunity with dot racing and they were looking for another female, uh, to fill the seat. And I made it very vocal that I love nitro racing. And they said, Leo, would you be interested in crossing over your funny car license into top fuel? I'm like, absolutely. Are you kidding me? So I went, I went the opposite way of what some people think. I went from funny car to dragster instead of dragster to funny car. And when people say, oh, funny cars are harder to drive, I always say, well, hey, have you driven one? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> or two. And then the second thing is it's all about your point of reference. You take somebody that is used to sawing at the wheel, used to seeing in a particular scope, and you change their dynamic, and it's just about change. So to drive with a more finesse manner or – different chassis styles that have more flex maneuverability and, and how to react to them is different. Well, when something's different, it's more challenging. So that's why when it, someone goes from top fuel to funny car, oh man, this thing's so difficult. Well, it's just because it's more and it's different. So if I ever got the chance to be back in a funny car, which trust me, I'm not, I'm, I'm not the first one in line to, to go and get in when I see it. I've been paying a lot of attention to my teammates and other cars out there and they put those laid back headers on. And how fast they go, and um, I have my I have, no, I have one goal. I have a number one goal. Well, I have lots of goals, but my number one fuel goal is to win a world championship. And I'm not going to entertain anything else until that happens. Now, I was with you for your first win. I was there in Phoenix in 2016. Tell me what was it like when you finally brought home that first professional Wally in top fuel? I have to say, it came much sooner than I would have thought it would have even though i'd been racing for now at that point 20 years it, i was with bob vandegrift racing for the beginning of uh, the 2016 season and we had we had such a terrible test session in phoenix earlier that year terrible by i mean we we were just our fuel system was off we were going through motors and and we just it wasn't very successful like our confidence wasn't very high going into that first race at pomona that first race that was my my first full-time season ahead of me and I went out first round against Clay Milk and I'll never forget that. And I'm like, you know, so our confidence as a driver and as a team going into Phoenix is like, all right, let's just get down to what we know. And I, I can remember this day and everything about it so perfectly, but I remember going up after the semifinal, we're rushing. Like we've, we've, we're kind of running out of parts and we 
get up to the final round, and I had no idea that Brittany was had even made it. Like, there's drivers that are up in the lounge, like reading a book and studying their timesheets and their, their ladders and blah blah blah. Like, we had so much of a crap show going on that <laughs> we were lucky to make it up there. So I hear Alan Reinhardt over the PA talking about it's been. 37 or 39 years since we've had two females in the final round in Top Fuel. Both of them never won a national event in Top Fuel. And in, that was at that moment when Alan said that was the first time it resonated with me because I'd won national events in Pro Mod and I've, you know, we made really hard charges with Dote Racing, but I hadn't been in that position. And I just remember thinking, no matter how this turns out, I'm like, I have nothing to lose. And when you have the mentality that you have nothing to lose, you have everything to gain. And that's the mentality I had in that final round. And we dug deep and we went fast and killed her on a tree. And like, we got that win. And that was, that was a very victorious uh, feeling for the team, for myself. Like I love racing against Brittany because she's so difficult to, she's a competitor and she always has a good car and you never, you know, you never know what you're going to get. If she's going to go in on you or take her time or if she's going to drill you, like she keeps you on your toes. And so I think from the sport, it was great for, for two females in the final, but for me, I couldn't have asked for a better first final round in top fuel. And because it, it felt so great and, and we were def- more than anything, the underdogs constantly chased that feeling. And as you progress with a team and, and parts and partners and opportunities come your way, you still are, you're still hungry for that feeling, which makes it uh, more difficult to obtain. And what I love about all the racers in Top Fuel is that we're all in different parts of our careers, of our lives, but yet when we line up against each other on the track, like none of that matters. We still bring this, uh, whatever our best skill set, motor set is, and uh, and the wind light doesn't doesn't care who you are or what you do, what you do on the weekend, what you do on the week, what you do for a living, what your ritual was getting in that car before you go down the track. Like that's my favorite thing is that the wind light is so unbiased. Oh my god, I just remember that wind so much, and I just remember all the guys and Bob and just like I was almost in tears. And then I just I remember you on the podium in your first win, and I remember Timmy Wilkerson just pouring that mellow yellow over you. <laughs> and the- it was. It was, it was awesome, and I I enjoy driving for Bob Vandergriff, and you know he's he's made a lot of waves in this sport, um, and you know he was able to provide me with my very first top field win with that team with Mike Guger and Joe Barlam, and that was uh, that's what dreams are made of, and that's kind of what keeps someone going. And for anybody that's listening and has their own dreams and path and passion and has challenges along the way you find those pinnacle moments of what keeps you going. And there's times I look back on that, on that particular Sunday, what it took to get there and then what it's going to take to get to the next, whatever, whatever that next thing is. And, uh, it's a, it's definitely the drive. It's definitely the chain and the drive for sure. And so then you're just going to hit you in a couple more things. Um, so one thing I love about you, I love working with you is you hustle more than anybody I know, like to get those sponsors, I don't know if people realize how hard it is to get sponsors. I mean, and I think there was like one year where you traveled so much to go to all these meetings, make these appearances. And so you could get that sponsorship. I mean, wow. That's all. Thank you. There are not um, a lot of people that know and, but it, it starts with the mentality. So in 2000 and 
I've always been a hustler for sponsors and to find what it is that they need. What's their market? What's their industry? What opportunities do I have that can help them? That's key number one. It's not about what they can do for you. It's about what you can do for them. And that's a very honest conversation you have. It's not like I hate selling. Totally not my thing. Sales and marketing. No. Communication and conversion. Yes. So I, that the reason that I think I have a good reputation with partners and finding partners is because I had no other choice. So when you don't come from a family that's involved in drag racing or from it or prevalent or a family history of it or successful, you know, life business that allows affords you to do those things. You get the really only other way is, um, is the mindset of representing partners. So I had a very, very early mindset. I want to represent some of the best brands and companies in the entire world. And subsequently, here we are with Shell Pennzoil, with Dodge, with Mopar. And like, in my mind, it doesn't get any bigger and better than that. But in 2017, actually, I guess starting in 16, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to do everything. I'm, I'm young. I don't have any kids. I already travel for 200 and something days a year. Any opportunity that comes my way and it fits, I'm going to take it and, and link everything up to it. So that ended up being over 300 days a year on the road. And after, after that, after two years of traveling like that and things were in place, I was finally able to see the work pay off. Now, fast forward into a COVID year when appearances aren't a thing. Um, you know, we're not at races and we're not able to make the correct moves or, or, or moves that benefit the partner at the races. You have to, you have to get smart about it. So I actually um, spend my time when I'm not racing with a digital tech marketing company that focuses on saving CMOs jobs. So like without going into any particular spill, but I've known my whole life spending money in motorsports is somewhat of a risky business unless you can prove that this is a perfect sale model, just like anything else, traditional media, retail media. So like, how do you make this more have more security in a very unsecure and unknown world. Well, if you can prove um, that your spend equals this conversion rate, whether it's negative, positive, it's objective. And you, you can never, you can't fight with objectivity. So I work in that space to be able to prove that the spend that a company has is worth their dollars. And if it's not worth their dollars, then and they don't spend it with us. So it's, um, it's been enlightening to me that I get to use my education, I get to use my experience and, and evolve. So I'm not just in motorsports and it's not selling sponsorship. It's, uh, it's providing a way for people to have security within their spend of their company. And I think in a time like this is there actually isn't anything more important. And selfishly, that's how I'm able to, I'm able to keep a job. If your partners are happy, I get to continue to drive a race car and continue to keep my dream alive. So thankful for the opportunities to be able to do all of them. See, it's a business too. And then you get that, you know, you're one of the people. And like you said, you have the education background for it. And so you can do it all and you hustle hard. And I try, but I, I do want to say without the people in place to help, to help you and help me that, uh, I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't be able to do it all. All the, the things, Nicole, when you and I worked together in 2013 and I was you know, pitching our team and trying to get newspaper write-ups and, uh, hopefully could be at a store appearance, um, still get to do those things but it's it's the team and schumacher's has a great pr 
uh, arm in place that helps us get what we need done so that we can move forward and look at new opportunities and new ways to connect with fans. And I think that's something that's been very important is for the fans that can't come to the races this year and they're only watching on TV, we are the most accessible sport in the world. So how do you stay accessible to them? And, and I think social media has been, as we all know, a huge driver and, um, in answering DMs and, you know, looking forward to somebody coming to a race and planning planning for them to come to a race next year, whatever it may be, is maintaining communication with your fan base is definitely key to a to having fun, but b I mean when they come out, you're their driver, and they need to feel like you're they're your driver more than just at the track. Shout out to uh, Allie, Ashley, and Ted over at DSR because they do do a wonderful job. Um, here's my other question too. So, how did you end up in the factory stock car? So. Awesome question. Another piece of that Tetris puzzle. (laughs) (laughs) When I first joined Schumacher Racing at the end of 2016, I was at a test session and was uh, had been working with Dale Aldo, like the grandfather of all Mopar. Anybody that runs any any Mopar and drag racing knows that that he's the man. Says Liam, you know, we really we really understood that we need to spend more time with our grassroots and sportsman racers and have products that are available and really have an ear for what these racers need, which means that we need to have a car on the track racing in these categories. Would you be interested in driving the, uh, a drag pack? And I was like, I've seen it in magazines. I've never really been able to watch them at the track because when they're running, I'm warming up my car doing fuel or whatever is necessary with the fuel car. So I'm at, I'm at a Wednesday Indy test at, in, at, at Indy, of course, and he says, hey, go up and check uh, Jeff Turk. It's the Blackbird Drag Pack. I'm like, okay. So I go up to the line. I think I'm just going to watch this car. This, oh my, Jeff pulls the biggest wheelie I've ever seen probably in my whole life to this day. Pulls it up. He's on the bars, past the Christmas tree, 100 feet out, 150 feet out. And this thing, like, I'm reading what's on his hood from the back of the car, from the starting line. He lets out of it, brings it down kind of nice, but, like, it still rebounds pretty hard, pedals it, goes down there. I get on the phone. I call Dale. I was like, Dale, you, this, this wheelie machine? I was like, these? He goes, yeah. I go, okay, I'm totally in. It, it brought me back to how I felt about driving the Pro Mod. I was a little bit scared. I didn't know what my talent base was driving that car, but I was going to figure it out. So I said, A, the number one that thing that stood out for me was, Mopar's vision of their their objective was to help the racers understand uh, understand what their needs were and to enter a car in competition. And so me being a Mopar driver, helping them relay their message and live their message, that's what dreams like that's what gets me going. You know, if it, like perfect example, sparkling ice, like already was one of my favorite beverages in the world. You partner with them, life goes on and it's great. So you get to live your partner's message. And man, let me tell you in the beginning with the drag pack, we were struggling hard and we had our fifth wheel trailer and we had just the Ram truck pulling up or parked in the grass. Um, We have two engineers from SRT and we have um, Mike Norris from uh, locally from, from Indy tuning on the car. And we're just trying to get this thing down the track. Fast forward to two years later of a world championship and Don Schumacher fielding two cars that are competitive and constantly uh, qualifying in the top one, two, or three. It's 
it's been incredible to see what Dodge does on the engineering side and not just talk about it, but do it and, and make it applicable to the track. And then it gives that foundation for everything that you see on TV of the, um, you know, the brotherhood of muscle to the most powerful muscle cars in the world OE produced. Like seeing all the back end for years and years of it happening and being a small part to drive those cars, that's, that's what's kept me excited about driving them. And, and taking so home I a championship. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, the championship was, we didn't really come into our own light until halfway through the season. Uh, U.S. national win was it, incredible. I don't care who you are. You, when you win the win U.S. nationals, you can win it in a one wheel. Junior dragster, top fuel. It's still the U.S. nationals. So when we did that in 2018 and then went on to win St. Louis and Dallas and, and lock, lock up the championship in a very, uh, in, I would call it an impressive fashion. You had a Ford, a Chevy, and a Dodge all within close points of each other that the semifinal round winner, the one who moved on, was the one able to lock it up, makes it just a testament to what that class is. And for those that don't know, that class is basically, it's a, uh, it's a muscle-out contest between the top three in Detroit. You know, of of Dodge, Chevy, and Ford, who can produce a factory car from the factory, a race car that anybody could buy at any time and enter any NHRA national vet or an MCA and compete against each other on one of the most um, equal playing fields. So that's that it it makes me excited because you have the most insane vehicle in the world, eleven thousand plus horsepower, and within six-minute turnaround, I'm out of that car, strapping into the factory car, going 170-plus miles an hour at 7.8 seconds, popping wheelies, shifting gears, leaving off a two-step, like complete opposite worlds, but still bring the same, um, the, I wouldn't say the same amount of excitement, but the, the same, I still bring the same intensity to both. They're just, they're like kids. If you have kids, you love them the same, but you love them differently. That's how I feel. And you have uh, El Bandito it is, uh, is your car, and I understand El Bandito has a special place. Is it on your foot? You got a tattoo? <laughs> that is, that's totally correct. So in 2018, when I won the championship, we won. I That was the first thing that I had ever really raced, leaving with my left foot. Everything's always been hammered down with your right. So I went to my local tattoo guy, and El Bandito on my left foot to represent the reaction time from the two step off the brake and super cool. I was traveling a couple of months, oh, two months ago, had to do a test session and this, I'm on the Delta flight, super small plane. And then this guy goes, Leah, I'm like, hey, yeah, hey, what's happening? We have masks on. Like I yeah. got mask, a hat, like hair looks like crap. And uh, he's like, oh, I wasn't sure if it was you, but I had to check your, I had to check out your sandal. And uh, yeah, you could tell it was you. I'm like, that's super cool. So it's something that if you get something tattooed on you, I mean, it's got to be pretty important. So, And the last thing I'm going to talk to you about today is because this is something that everybody watched. I watched in horror last month when I saw this in um, St. Louis. You uh, had a pretty massive crash with your top fuel car, but you walked away. And not only that, I mean, you were you do your interview, you, you're calm, you're composed. And I'm like, that's my friend Leah. She's a badass. Yeah. Um, tell me, what was going through your mind when you were like in the air, you know, cut in half? Well, the, uh, 
the f- first thing, thank you. Um, and secondly, is the way that that car is designed and what it did uh, when it was in chassis jeopardy for that front portion to break away in front of the footbox, designed to get that mass away from the driver to to stop with rotation. So everything did. I, I I'm not gonna lie. I was in a little bit of shock um, because that's never happened to me before. But when it was happening, I unfortunately did know what was happening. And I could replay it. could take 18 minutes, but I'll go through it real quick. Of Stab the gas, leave the line. Car wants to go left. I drive it right. By the time I get 150 feet out, it wants to go left again. I'm like, man, this is, doesn't usually do that at this portion in the track. But it's round two eliminations. We're in the championship hunt. I'm like, drive this thing. So get to about 300 feet, and I see, I see more of sky and more actually kind of more of track and then more of sky than I normally see and I go oh my gosh like and it wasn't spinning of a tire where you where you get high in the car like where you elevation where you where you get high it was my viewpoint had completely changed at that moment the car that's when the car had first started to buckle in that picture that you see before it has broken that's what I felt I get out of the gas well then it it accentuates and the front part of the car breaks off I see from sky to scoreboards and the only time I ever ever see the top of the scoreboards is when you're pulling a big fat wheeling factory car which is good that's a good thing it's fun you know it's going to come down you pedal it down you 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 know that you're you know confident that you're square when you're in the fuel car and you see the top of the scoreboards disappear and you see the sky and it is quiet it is so quiet the motor is running but there literally was like no sound and I knew I wasn't even square anymore. I go, I shouldn't be seeing this. And I go, oh, no, this is not good. Like, <laughs> literally in, like, that tone of, like, this is not good. And I was like, Lord, please don't let this hurt because I didn't know how long I would be flying in the air. I thought I was going to, t- I thought I was going to rotate more. The next thing I know, I'm slammed on the ground and I'm pulling brake, pumping slow, slow enough and and I'm just, I was in shock that I, I'm like, I feel totally fine. And there's one thing that they teach you at Frank Holly's school and anywhere else, get out of the car. Like, let everybody know if you, if something happens, get out. And I, I was like, this ride is over. It is time to get out of this race car. And when I got out and I looked at the front of it, that, um, that's not what I expected to see, actually. Wow. Um, I expect I was expecting for the front part of the car to be on it, and I didn't know that it had detached. Um, and so when I saw that, I had so many questions in my mind of, of okay, well, what happened? What made it do this? What did I did I do something? Did I drive it out of the groove? I'm like, I don't think I drove it out of the groove. No, we weren't smoking the tire. What happened? How did this happen? And from there, it took the next you know couple of weeks. Um, we figured out how very weird situation that you know potentially had caused that and we've fixed every potential situation that would have caused it and we move forward but i would say the calm collectiveness is that something insane just happened and i was completely fine and i worked closely with joe fitzpatrick and my team of that chassis design and i was just in awe that it did everything it was supposed to and schumacher when he preaches about the canopy and Antron Brown and now myself, it's like I was living, I was living something that 
I had already believed, but the truth was just there in front of me. So that's kind of what kept me super calm. Wow, because I remember something Larry said, too, when he had a similar accident was everything works the way it's supposed to. And I actually feel safer in that car than I do in my car headed to the track because I know all the safety gear is going to come through for me. It's uh, it, it, you, you do have a lot of confidence in it, but you take every precaution so that nothing like that ever happens. So, yep, big shout out to my team. And I couldn't wait to get back in a car. I mean, <sighs> yeah, I just, just to get done. I couldn't wait so bad that I still had factory, first round of factory to run. And I cleared. I, I felt fine. We go up there to run. And Kevin, my crew chief, Helms, is like, what lane would you like? They look pretty good up there. I was like, I want the right lane. I just crashed in the right lane in the fuel car less than one hour ago. I wanted to slay this dragon with the factory car and get down there. Well, we ended up having a that class got canceled for that particular event, and we didn't get to run. But I was so ready to just just get over it and, and move on. And luckily, I only had a week to think about it, digest it. And that's like, that's where the internal, you can, to say that you had zero fear or that I had zero fear getting back in the car would be a lie. I mean, there's like, okay, you just met up with the closest thing to death that you're probably ever going to do. Let's not do that again. Let's get back in competition mode. You have Steve Torrance and Doug Coletta and Billy Torrance and you got Just Nashley, you got Antra coming up like it's time to slay. Yes, so that's why I love you. It's your own little pep talk. See, this is why I love you because you're so passionate and you're such a badass. And like you go out there and you always give it your 100%. And I just love it. That's why you're awesome. <laughs> so, oh, I appreciate that. And I can look forward to giving it my 110% for as long as I possibly can. Yes, I'll have to have you back on in, in 2020 or uh, 2021 when, because uh, I'm like, oh my God, I, there's so much more I could talk to her about, but I know I can't. So, um, but thank you so much, Leah, for coming on today. And I love your message you have for girls who want to get into racing, whatever it be. And I just thank you so much for uh, coming and talking to me today. So, Leah, tell people where they can find you and follow you on social media. So for race updates and everything lifestyle, like on the daily, I do the most with Instagram. So that's Leah.Pruitt on Instagram. And uh, yeah, you're like real time of everything that's happening, a little bit of inside scoop. And that's where I keep it the realest. So Twitter, of course, uh, Leah Pruitt underscore TF. And Facebook has got the majority of photos of every race of every car. If you really want to look back, see some See the crash, see El Bandito, um, but Leah.Pruitt on Instagram is where it's at daily. Well, thank you so much, and you have a wonderful day out there in Arizona. What's what's the plans for today, biking or boating? Uh, it's biking today. I'm on a kick of either biking or playing volleyball every day until it gets frozen over. So uh, the the water's pretty cold right now, so I'm, I'm not, I haven't been surfing lately, but I'll get I'll get back to it soon. It just I'm very much enjoying as much as I can, and that's the mentality, and um, I think that's something that we should all share. Okay, well, thank you so much, Leah. Hey, and we'll catch you later. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you 
where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. Thank you for listening. I'm Nikki Clark, and this is Women Take the Wheel. Be sure to connect and follow on Facebook when you search Women Take the Wheel podcast. And be sure to follow and subscribe to this podcast right now over on the All Indiana Podcast Network. From the All Indiana Podcast Network, this is Women Take the Wheel with Nikki Clark. Follow and subscribe to this podcast now and discover even more great podcasts on the All Indiana Podcast Network. Online at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. All Indiana Podcast Network.com.